chapter 10, and uh, I simply call this chapter Another Look Behind the Scene. Another Look Behind the Scene. Uh, This is one of those parenthetical passages in the book of Revelation. It is a parenthesis. In fact, this is the second parenthesis that you'll find in this book of Revelation. And I mean by that, you remember back in chapter 7, we found the first of these parentheses. They move off, as it were, from the main flow of events. Uh, In the seventh chapter, there was a break between the opening of the sixth and the seventh seal. And between those seals, you'll find that parenthetical chapter, chapter 7. And it gives us more information, more in light, and gives us a greater perception of what really is taking place in this period of time. And then we come to this second, and you'll find that this parenthesis uh, not only involves chapter 10, but goes all the way through verse 14 of chapter 11. So we're dealing with another look behind the scenes, as it were. And that always helps kind of get other things in focus. Uh, It gives us a a greater idea of what is really taking place. Uh, I remember when I had the privilege of of working in the film Sheffy, the movie Sheffy. Such an eye-opener to me uh, to work uh, all those many days and hours, uh, as it were, behind the scenes. I never realized what really went into the making of a film, a movie. Uh, And yet so much went into it. And I look in these parenthetical chapters and it seems like the Lord has taken us behind the scene to give us a greater view of what's going on. Well, let's read from chapter 10 at verse 1. There are only 11 verses and that reads like this. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven clothed with a cloud and a rainbow was upon his head and his face was as it were the sun and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth, and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. I must remind you, this is the vision God has given to John. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write, And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven, and the things that that therein are, and the earth, and the things that that therein are, and the sea, and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book or the scroll. 
And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up. And it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Now in these, this chapter, uh, which is, we said, the, a parenthetical chapter, there are two things that I think are very significant about this parenthesis. First of all, it is a moment of rest. If you're jotting it down, simply remember the word rest. It is a moment of rest. Up to this point, apart from chapter 7, all we have been hearing from the beginning of the time of the tribulation, all we have been hearing and thinking about and reading about is judgment, judgment, judgment. And you know, when you begin to think about that, and if that's the only thing that you focus your mind on, I think you just cry out in weariness of heart and soul and mind, and you begin to find yourself saying, when will it ever stop? When will it ever stop? In other words, how gracious is God to give us that point of rest, even in the study of such a gruesome, awful, horrifying thing as the wrath of God that's going to be poured out upon this earth. He gives us a moment of respite. In other words, we are not so constructed that our minds can stay focused upon one thing constantly, 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 and it not have a very dreaded and ill effect on us. It has something of the similar effect of a fellow eating the same food every time he sits down at the table. I mean the same diet, the same foods. Uh, he has chicken three times a day for, for six months on end. Uh, after a while you get to where you hate to even look at a chicken. And uh, you're too embarrassed to even look him in the face. And uh, you're sick of it. In other words, the Lord gives us a moment of rest here. And I think he does it for another reason. Listen carefully to this. It is easy to lose sight of the end result if we are constantly involved with present pain. In other words, it's difficult for us to see ahead what God is really planning and what he is going to accomplish if we are absorbed and filled with pain. And so the Lord gives us these breaks that he might give us an enlivened heart. And we might once again take note of the fact of where all of this is heading. It's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like going to the dentist, I guess. Uh, you ever sit in a chair? I hate to remind you of this. Uh, it's painful for me to even think about it. But you ever notice when the dentist is working on you and man, he's got that auger in your mouth and uh, drill and uh, he's just whining away and uh, all of a sudden he stops and uh, boy, you just say in your heart, boy, am I glad. And uh, uh, after a while, he may, he may walk out of the room, then he comes back in, picks up that drill, starts on you again. Now, I mean, that's pain. In other words, you're wondering when in the world is this guy ever going to get through? Uh, and so the whole thing about judgment is like that. 
We can get so absorbed in the wrath of God that we, and so uh, concentrating on that that we forget what all of this is about and the end result that God has determined. Now then I think not only is it a moment of rest, but it is a moment of reminder. It is a moment of reminding us of the mercy of God. Notice uh, that again, like the Old Testament prophet prayed, Lord, in wrath, he said, remember mercy. And even in the midst of his wrath, there is this expression of chapter 10 and 11 through verse 14 of the very mercy of God. Oh, how merciful indeed is our God. It is also a reminder of his mastery. It is a reminder of his mastery. That is to say, God is saying now, I'm going to stop between the sounding of the sixth and the seventh trumpet and let you know that things are not out of control, that I am still the sovereign God, though things look like they're going haywire and the world's going down the tubes and it's wrath everywhere you turn. I want to remind you that I am still the master controller. I am still in control. And I'm glad the Lord does that even in the present time of our life. I'm glad that even though things are rough on us and, and trials come and things beset us, oh, how good it is for God to just have us to stop for a moment that we might remember in spite of everything that looks like is going haywire and out of control, God's saying, hey, I want you to know I'm in control. I read something the other day, and I think I mentioned this maybe to somebody, I don't remember, but I thought it was such a meaningful statement. And the statement relative to music says, there is no music in a rest. You know what a rest is? Where you pause as you're singing, it's a rest. And there's a sign for that, I think, in the, uh, in, in there, is there a sign for that? In the songbooks, some little funny looking thing, it means rest. There is no music in a rest, but listen, there is the making of music in it. There is the making of music in it. And I believe God is stopping right here to rest, to give us a reminder that not only is he merciful, but he is the master. And not only that, but I believe he reminds us of his mission. There is a mission that God has. And that very mission is about to be completed and about to be fulfilled. And though we may think at times, God, you sure are slow and you're not getting it done. I wish you'd hurry up. But God is reminding us that there is the ultimate mission and that is to put down all evil, wrong and sin and unrighteousness and establish righteousness upon this very earth. I'm glad the Lord gave us this rest. Now let me give you four things that I think in this chapter are very significant. And uh, if you would, you might want to jot them down. Notice first of all in verse 1 through 4, the mighty angel. The mighty angel, verse 1 through 4. In verse number 5 and 6, notice the militant announcement. The militant announcement of the angel. And then at verse number seven, uh, you'll observe the mystery of the Almighty. It talks about the mystery of God, the mystery of the Almighty. And finally at verse eight through 11, uh, I simply call this the mastication of the atlas. You know what to masticate means, just chew it up. And that's what God said to John, uh, do with this little book that's open, chew it up, masticate this very atlas, this very record, this book that I hold in my hand. Now let's look, if you will, with the time we have remaining at verse 1 through 4. Observe the mighty angel. 
The question arises, who is this mighty angel? Who is this one who now descends out of heaven? Well, I'd, I'd certainly tell you that there are some who identify this mighty angel as the angel Gabriel. However, from the description that I read in this chapter of this mighty angel, I do not identify him as the angel Gabriel or any other high angel. But rather, I think there's great evidence to believe that here is a manifestation of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, angel, for example, the word angel comes from the word angelion, which simply translates as messenger. An angel, the word angel is not a name, it is a title. It is a title. And so when we talk about an angel, we're not talking about some with a name. Well, we do have one year named angel, but uh, we're not talking about a name. We're talking about a title. And so then here is an angel, a, a, literally a messenger that descends from heaven. Now, I have reason to believe that this is the mighty angel, the mighty messenger, our Lord Jesus Christ. Back in the Old Testament book of Malachi, chapter 1 through 6, there's very interesting verses to read in relation to this. And in verse 1 of Malachi, chapter 3, the Lord Jesus is referred to as the messenger of the covenant. John is called the messenger who would be the forerunner of the messenger of the covenant. And Malachi in those verses goes into a description of the judgment that this messenger of the covenant will bring. You'll find then frequently in the Old Testament, uh, you'll read of this manifestation of our Lord. He is referred to as the angel of Jehovah, the messenger of Jehovah. Now, in the Old Testament where you find this, theologians call these pre-incarnate appearances of the Christ in the Old Testament in angelic form. They call them theophanies, theophanies, or Christophanies, a manifestation, an appearing of Christ. And, and you'll find that, for example, in relation to Abraham and others, the Lord Jesus himself appears in an angelic form. In Isaiah chapter six, verse uh, chapter sixty-three and verse nine, he is called the angel of his presence. The angel of his presence. In Exodus three, at verse number two, he is called the angel of the Lord. And if you read that third chapter of Exodus, all of the claims and actions of that angel of the Lord, that angel of Jehovah can pertain only to deity. They can pertain only to God, not to some created being such as we think of in terms of a regular angel. Now, note carefully four things pertaining to this angel that the Lord reveals in this chapter. Notice verse one, his clothing. Notice his clothing. He is clothed with a cloud. Clothed with a cloud. Do you see that in verse one? Now, the cloud was of old the garment of God's presence. The cloud of old was that garment of God's presence. For example, jot these down. Exodus 16 and verse 10, where the verse says, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. 
Exodus 19, verse 9, and also verse 16. At Sinai, the scripture says, he descended in a thick cloud. In a thick cloud, God descended to Mount Sinai where he gave Moses the law. And Exodus 34, verse 4 and 5. You'll notice in those verses, when the Lord appeared to Moses a second time after the tablets of the law had been broken, when God came to restore that law, the verse says, the Lord descended in the cloud. In Leviticus 16 and verse 2, the verse says, I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Again in Matthew 17 and verse 5, at the time of the transfiguration of Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, listen to this verse, verse 5, a bright cloud overshadowed them and behold a voice out of the cloud which said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then our mind goes to Acts chapter 1 and verse 9 where when Jesus ascended up into heaven from the Mount of Olives, a cloud received him out of their sight. And then we have already read in Revelation chapter 1 at verse 7 where the, vo- where the word says, Behold, he cometh with the clouds. He cometh with clouds. Well, you said over the world, uh, is, is what you're trying to say to us here, is this some kind of Jesus coming back in the middle of the tribulation? Not at all. This is a as it were, a Christophany, an appearance of Christ in angelic form as he comes to reassure us, even as he reassured Abraham and others of what God has in plan and in his program for this very world and for the accomplishment of his purpose. So as all of this thing, all these things I've referred to you about the cloud, all of these things suggest that the mighty angel in this sense, is Christ. Notice not only that, but look at verse 2. Not only his clothing as in verse 1, but notice his chattel. His chattel. I didn't say cattle. His chattel. Now, the word chattel is defined in law as being an item of personal property. It is an item of personal property. Now, two things in this verse I want you to observe. Look at it. In, the se- in this second verse, There are two things that are claimed as his chattel. That is, as his own personal possession or property. Two things. The word and the world. Two things. Do you see it? And he had in his hand, in his possession, a little book open. And he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth. In other words, in his hand, he holds the word. Under his feet, he holds the world. So what we're seeing here is our Lord's rightful ownership. Now, though this little book could well indeed represent the entire message of the word of God, I think in particular, it refers to that scroll that book that John saw that had seven seals upon it and now those seven seals have been broken and notice the statement, the book or the word of the original is the scroll is open 
In other words, the seals have been broken. And now in this very interlude, the Lord is saying, here our Savior comes to lay hold not only upon the sealed book that now is open, title deed to the earth, but now he sets his foot on the earth and on the sea as if to say, these are my possessions. I have conquered. I am victorious. I now possess that possession that's mine. In other words, when a fella uh, is in a sporting event, wrestling, and especially the old Greek games of wrestling, fellow's thrown down, the victor put his foot on the guy's neck. And so here is the picture of conquering, of, of conquest, of victory. So here is our Lord's chattel, the word. And you know the Bible speaks of the Bible as the word what? Of God. Of God. Not only out from God, but it's the possession of God. In other words, this is not my book, it's God's book. It is not my truth, it is God's truth. It is not my plan, it is God's plan. And so here we see this mighty angel, the, the very uh, appearance of Christ in angelic form. We see him not only clothed in the clouds of deity, but we see him holding his chattel, the word in his hand, and the very world that is by right his, by right of creation, by right of redemption. Look at verse 3 now, the first part of the verse, and you see his cry. You've seen the angel's clothing. You see the angel's chattel. Look at the angel's cry. And verse 3 says like this, and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. Reminds me of Revelation 1 in the first opening vision of Christ. Where in Revelation chapter 1 verse 10, you remember John said, And I heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. But now what's the character of this voice? Are you all thinking with me? You're going to have to use your coconut. That's reading God gave you one now. You'll get this on the silver platter. So here's what he's saying. He is saying, hear this great voice. He cries with a loud voice as if a lion roars. That again reminds you of a, a, a characterization of the Lord Jesus. He is not only the lamb, but he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Not only the lamb who gives himself as a sacrifice for man's sin, but as a lion who is a conqueror. And now you remember, here is that one, the lamb who we saw there at the throne and also who had the appearance of a lion. Now his voice is heard to cry. You see, it is a loud voice. Men today in this age of grace may stop their ears to the tender voice of our Lord Jesus and refuse to hear. But I want to tell you something, listen to me. There's coming a day when you're going to hear him whether you want to or not. There's not enough cotton. There's not enough fingers. There is not enough medical devices and technology to keep you from hearing that voice of the lion who roars out in wrath. And they tell me that the lion, the king of the beasts, he, when he charges in that final charge, there's a giant roar. And that's the picture John is giving here undoubtedly. The roar of his voice. In other words, he cries with a loud voice. That is not a request that men hear his voice. It is a requirement. 
You cannot help but hear. And there's coming a day, listen, that even men in this day will voluntarily and willingly of their own choice bow to him. Or there's coming a day when men will be made to listen and made to bow and made to submit. But in that coercion of bowing and hearing, there is no mercy. It is too late for men to hear when they're made to hear. Then look, if you will, at verse 3, the latter part of the verse, verse 3b through 4, and you hear his command. Here is his command. Verse 3, notice. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, to me, seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. Let me just simply say it like this. God doesn't tell all. He doesn't reveal everything. There are many people who have wasted their time trying to tell us what the voice of these seven thunders say. But that is pure speculation. It is idiocy. For the Lord said, you seal it up. Don't, John said, listen, I was ready to write. When I heard that thundering voice of seven thunders that boomed out, he said, what I heard, I started to write. And then the angel said, don't write it. Don't put it down. Listen, there are some things that God does not reveal. And in fact, simply I think because in many instances, were he to reveal what he has uttered in the deep secrets of God, our heavenly father, we wouldn't understand it. If an atomic physicist stood here, nuclear physicist stood here and lectured us on nuclear physics and all that, listen, I, I, it'd be a waste of my time. I'd be sleeping worse than some of y'all sleep while I preach. But the whole story is, I mean, I just couldn't handle that. Uh, no, I'm not fussing at you. God bless you. If you sleep while I preach, have at it. That's all right. Uh, anybody can sleep in a thunderstorm deserves a nap now and then, don't you think? But anyway, amen. All right, thank you, folks. So you're what I'm saying is this, folks. Here, these voices are heard, and John hears them, and God said, hey, don't write it. Don't write it. Now, there are some things that God doesn't reveal because he chooses not to. And we waste a lot of our time trying to figure out what God hadn't revealed. Let me show you one, the doctrine of sovereign election. I don't understand that doctrine. I only know it's taught in the scripture. I cannot fathom that. Why? Why did God choose Abraham instead of somebody else over in Earl of the Chaldees? I don't know. God didn't tell me. And had he told me, I probably wouldn't have understood. The whole story is, I don't understand something that God indeed is not revealing. Now, this is the only instance in this entire book that the Lord said, seal that part up. Don't even write that, John. And so the command was given. Now then look at verse 5 and 6, please, and you'll see the militant announcement that is made. The militant announcement in verse 5 down through verse number 6. Again he said, And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth live his hand swear by him that liveth forever and ever who created heaven, sown the earth, the sea, and all that which, is, which are therein. That, verse 6, last part, that there should be time no longer. Now you wonder why I call this a militant announcement. The word militant suggests conflict with opposing power. 
the con- I say that's conflict with opposing powers. It is a warlike or a combative tendency. It is a word of not defense, but offense. It is a word that denotes aggression. Aggression. All right, now follow that and keep that in mind and look at verse 6. The latter statement says, and gives a statement that often is misunderstood because I think we have just failed to look into it, that there should be time no longer. Now, is John, is this verse saying that right here is the end of all time? Undoubtedly, no. Why? We've got at least the remainder of the tribulation. We have got at least a thousand years of reign of Christ upon this earth. We say that if it doesn't mean what, what in the world does it mean? Look back at the word time. It comes from a word in the language of the Greek New Testament, chronos, chronos. We have an incorporation of that word in our English language, chronology and so forth. The word chronos. Now, it comes from the verb chronizo, chronizo, which literally means, and don't miss this, which literally means to while away time by way of lingering or delaying or tarrying. Now, if you want to find another verse where that same usage is found, you'll find it in Matthew 24 and verse, 20, and verse number 48. Matthew 24, verse 48. And the verse reads like this. Listen, Jesus is given a parable. And he said, but and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, my Lord, Carnizzo, delayeth his coming. Now, do you see what I'm saying? So the word here literally, and most of you who have a marginal reference in your Bible, you'll find the reference where time is found. In the reference, you'll find the word delay. So what the Lord is saying is this. I will delay no longer. I will not tarry any longer. I have tarried long enough. I have lingered long enough. So he is not announcing the end of time as we think about it, for much more is yet to come, but he is simply saying, I have waited long enough. For centuries and millenniums, God in mercy has lingered and waited while sinful, Christ-rejecting, God-hating men, God-ignoring men and women have trampled his son under their feet. And we often look around our world and we say, God, how can you let this go on? How can you remember back in the earlier chapter those souls that were seen under the altar in heaven and they were praying, how long, O oh Lord, how long are you going to wait till you, revenge, till you bring vengeance? How long will you be till you avenge our blood? And now the Lord says, I have waited long enough. He's waited through this age of grace when men have an opportunity to receive Christ and follow him. 
And now already in the revelation he has waited even while his wrath and judgment was poured out and up to the point that you'll find in Revelation 9 at verse 21 that even after the severest kind of judgment of God, the verse says, and they repented not of their sin, of their wickedness, of their idolatry, their sorcery, their witchcraft, their immorality, their fornication, their sin. They did not even repent in the midst of judgment. And now the Lord says, I've waited long enough. Ladies and gentlemen, listen to me. God is going to wait only so long. And you may think this world has gotten by with its sin and wickedness and wretchedness. But the only reason God has delayed is his mercy. 2 Peter 3, 9. He is not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. And they said, where is the promise of his coming you've been talking about? For all things continue as they were. Is he coming or is he not? And Peter said, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. He don't make a promise and back out on it. He promised that one day evil will be put down. That one day he had ruled on this earth, that wicked men who have spit in God's face and trampled his blood under their feet, that judgment is coming. And some of you have consoled yourself and comforted yourself and thinking, hey, nothing's happened to me. I've sinned. I know I've sinned. I've rejected God's son. Nothing happened to me. Just hold on. Judgment awaits. God is not mocked. What he's promised, he will fulfill. And just as judgment will come upon Christ-rejecting men, I want to tell you something. Salvation can come as well, for he promised that if you trust him, believe on him, turn to him, he would save you. Thank God for that kind of promise. And then again, he will no longer delay. Look, look at verse number 7. Here's the mystery of the Almighty. The word mystery simply means something that is unrevealed through the ages is now revealed for the first time. That means something that can't be understood. Uh, the rapture, for example, that we talk about when the Lord comes in the air for us is considered and called in the New Testament a mystery. And Paul yet said, I want to reveal this mystery to you. As he did in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51 and 52. And he, went, and he said it like this, behold, I show you a mystery. Paul said, I'm going to unveil this to you. It's been sealed up. The Old Testament prophets didn't foresee the rapture. They only saw the coming reign of Christ when he comes a second time, puts his feet on the earth. They didn't see this church age. They didn't see this catching out of the bride of Christ. But Paul said, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. Listen, that's that mystery. And now this mystery of the Almighty is mentioned here. What mystery? What is this mystery of God? This mystery of the Almighty. Well, I can't help but believe it's that mystery that has been so mysterious to all of us. Why sin? Why such a being as Satan? Why all the suffering? Why all this? The mystery of God not yet revealed. Now, I've got a sneaking idea that that may have been what was uttered in those seven thunders. And John said, boy, do I ever want to write this down. I want to explain to people what you've said and maybe they'll understand why sin, why suffering, why the delay, why all the tragedy, why all of, the, why all of this, why has God permitted it? And the Lord said, 
They wouldn't understand if you wrote it. Like Paul, when he was caught up in the third heaven, he saw things that were not even lawful for him to utter. He couldn't even tell people, though he had seen them with his own eyes. So the Lord sealed it. Well, I believe that's that mystery. And at the sounding of the seventh trumpet, that unrevealed mystery, that unrevealed purpose of God will be completed. That is, it'll be finished. It'll be fulfilled. And God will be able to say, and listen, don't we understand better from hindsight than we do foresight? You look back at something, you kind of understand it a little better. Ah, but here God will indeed reveal to us that marvelous and glorious mystery. Last of all, and i got to close with this. Verse 8 through 11, John shows us the mastication of the atlas. What a strange heading I've given you. I call it an atlas, for an atlas is defined in your dictionary as any bound collection of plates or engravings showing systematically the development of a subject. So here, John is told to eat this little book. Undoubtedly, I think he's referring to the whole truth of God. The whole truth of God, this little book. And now he's saying to him, eat it. Now notice four steps in these final verses. Verse 8, the request is given. Go and take this little book, this scroll, out of the hand of the angel. In other words, it is a request. In other words, it's an appeal to the will. It is not a command, a mandatory thing. It is a request. Go, he said. Go take it out of the hand. In other words, God doesn't force his word upon any man. God doesn't force his word on you. God doesn't force his truth on you. Yet he reveals it, he announces it, but he gives man a choice. Today, the verse says, if you will hear his voice, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. Again, the Bible reiterates simply, if any man hath an ear, let him hear. He's not forced to hear this great truth of God as he'll be forced to hear the announcement of judgment and condemnation. But he is given a choice. Revelation twenty two seventeen says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him that heareth say, Come, and whosoever will, let him come and take the water of life freely. That's the request. He gives them an appeal to the will of John. But notice verse, uh, verse number 9, the response that John gives. And the verse says, And I went and said, Give me the little book. Thank God when a man responds of his own will to God's request. Come now, the prophet said, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins are scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Thank God for men who respond to that. Come unto me, Jesus said, all you that labor to heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me a meek and lowly in heart. You shall find rest in your soul. Thank God for men who say I will. I respond to that. And so John responds, setting a pattern for us. Notice verse 10, the result of it. When John goes over and he is commanded, or he is told to eat the book, he's already taken it in his hand. Now the Lord is saying, assimilate it, digest it, eat it. And yet he said, when it was in my mouth, it was sweet. But in my belly, it became bitter. How sweet to taste, to the taste of the soul of the believing sinner is the word of God. Here I am, the doctor says to me, watch this, here is sweetness and pain. The doctor says, preacher, 
you have an illness. It can be very fatal. That's bitter, that's bitter to me. But it's sweet when he says, but we have a cure. God's word says to the unsaved man, there is a need for repentance and regeneration. You're a sinner condemned before God. That's painful. But then he turns and says, but there is forgiveness. There is mercy. There is salvation in Jesus Christ. That's sweet. So this message of the word of God, as John ate it, he said, it's sweet to me. But all for how God will accomplish that. The accomplishing, accomplishing of all that he has purposed to do became bitterness in my stomach. And I want to tell you something. This world one day will be a world ruled in righteousness. No heartache, no tears, no crime, no sin, no disease, no death. That's sweet, isn't it? But all the bitterness, the pain that's going to come before it happens. Jesus said, I'll save you, that's sweet, sweet taste, but all the bitter pain and agony he endured in order to save us. The truth is, John ate of it, and it was sweet to his taste, but bitter. Let me tell you this, the message of salvation is sweetness to a man who will believe on Christ. But the message of salvation is bitterness to the man who rejects Christ. This book is not only a message of salvation, my friend, it's a message of damnation. Salvation to those who come. Damnation to men who refuse. Read it like this in John chapter 3 and verse 18. He that believeth is not condemned. But he, that's sweet, isn't it? But he that believeth not is condemned already. The rejection of Christ, what a bitter, bitter tragedy. And finally, there is a reminder to John in verse 11. And he said, John, you've got work to do. You must yet witness this word before many, before kings and priests. And let me say in closing, so should you and I who are saved. We've got a job to do. It may be sweet in the ears of some, but bitter in the ears and heart and stomachs of others. But God says, give it out. Tell it. It is a message of life unto life, or it is a savor of death unto death. Thank God for this little interlude. And the Lord letting us look behind the scenes to tell us it's going to work out. It's under my control I want you to rest assured that what I've promised you is going to take place. John, there's some suffering ahead for you. There's some pain. There's agony. John said the message of a new world is sweet, oh God. But it's bitter when I think of what I may endure in the announcing of that message. Do you know the sweetness of Christ? Do you know him as your Savior, or is there the bitterness of knowing that without Christ, if you were to die right here today, you'd go straight to hell? What a bitter thought. What a joyful thought that you don't have to leave here like that. You can go home saved, forgiven, a child of God. And I hope as you leave here today, you'll go realizing like John, you got a job to do. 
Let's tell it like Jeremiah. The Lord said to him, well, they listen to you, not Jeremiah. In fact, they're not going to listen to you. But he said, what I want you to do is tell it. Witness, share the message. God help us to do it.